Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Difficult as it can be to remember in a world of screens and filing your taxes, we live on an ocean planet in which wild varieties of organisms both live their own lives and also support the rest of our planet's biosphere. For many decades, human beings have exploited the world's oceans, plundering them out beyond where national laws hold sway. Now, after two decades of trying, the United Nations has finalized a treaty to protect the high seas. Covering nearly half the planet, this treaty is a step forward in humans taking responsibility for the mess that we've made in the great blue ocean covering most of our planet. We talk with the people who helped make the treaty happen after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. After more than 20 years of talking, negotiating, wrangling, rethinking, Countries from across the world have finalized a United Nations treaty to protect the high seas, that open ocean out beyond what we call national territory. So it's easy to get cynical about collective global projects. We can worry about the difficulty of implementation or the resources available for enforcement. But let's take a win here. It's hard to get representatives from across the world, especially with the various tensions between the most powerful nations, between global north and global south, between countries with vastly different histories, between places with wildly varying relationships with the ocean. It's hard to get all those things to agree about anything, and the countries did. So this morning, we're going to talk about the state of the high seas and this new treaty to protect the organisms that live there. Up first to help us, we're joined by Christina Jurdy, a lawyer and senior high seas advisor with the International Union for Conservation of Nature's Global Marine and Polar Program. Welcome, Christina. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. We're also joined by Douglas McCauley, professor in ecology, evolution, and marine biology at UC Santa Barbara. He also heads the Benioff Ocean Science Laboratory at UCSB. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning. So many people, including yourselves, have dedicated years of your lives to building this treaty, to getting consensus around it. And I want to start with your motivations. Um, Christina, maybe let's, let's go first to you. Was there a moment when you thought to yourself, OK, I have to dedicate my life to protecting the ocean? Yes. Well, there were two moments, in fact. The first was the time I of my first scuba dive in Palau when it opened my eyes to the incredible color and intricacy of the underwater marine environment. I grew up in California, loved the waves, the the beach, the ocean, but it was that first dive that made me convince myself to, to move from international maritime law, commercial law, to actually helping to protect the ocean. 
It was then when I was at a conference and saw videos of deep sea corals being mm. trawled, destroyed by um, high seas bottom fisheries that I said, we need something to better protect the high seas. Thanks. Yeah. Um, Douglas McCauley, how about you? Well, I'm a Californian as well. I split my time, grew up in Los Angeles, spent a lot of time in different parts of the Bay Area. And I love nature. I, I love being in and around wildlife and absorbing all of it. It has to give for inspiration and recharge. And as, as most folks know, it's a sometimes a little hard to find nature on land in around the Bay Area and LA. But I discovered early on when I was a kid that you buy a $15 mask and you bought a ticket into wildlife if you actually an amazing nature if you actually can stick your face underwater and go right offshore you can be in line of sight of downtown san francisco or downtown la and share space with with megafauna with whales with sharks be scared be inspired be blown away and so um that's how i found the ocean and and how i fell in love with it and how i've committed my uh my career to trying to do something to keep it so other folks can find that same kind of uh source of inspiration from it. And you just, I mean, just kind of fun. You came to us this morning, like fresh off an airplane from doing a whale survey, right? You're, you're <laughs> actively involved in this kind of research all the time. That's right. No, it's a wonderful career. So we're involved in a project to help uh, reduce roadkill, if you will, on the ocean where large ships run over whales. And we have a system out in front of San Francisco and a system down and the entryway to Port of Los Angeles and Long Beach that helps detect whales and prevent them from getting hit. And we were just up in the air surveying. There's a, a mass migration of gray whales. A lot of folks in California know, but many don't know. There's a there is a um, there is this wonderfully large migration of these um, massive mammals traveling north right now, right hugging the coast because it's safe, mm -hmm. headed towards Alaska. So we're out counting those whales and making sure that they were safe and out of these ocean highways. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk treaty. Uh, Christina Jurdy, when we say high seas, um, just let people know, you know, we're not using this as kind of like a yar, go out to the high seas, but an actual kind of technical definition of a piece of the ocean. Well, the high seas are the ocean beyond 200 nautical miles from the shore. That's it's defined under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea that set forth in 1982. So it's that water beyond the control of national laws, even though we do have national laws that apply in the high seas, but we require international management cooperation in order to make these laws have any teeth. That's, and um, that the treaty is not just about the high seas, it's also about the deep sea beyond national jurisdiction. And that sort of is your extended continental shelf, maybe out to 200 or 350 nautical miles. Um, and that is the so-called seabed area that has been deemed the common heritage of humankind. Yeah. So what is it that has been so difficult about putting together a treaty for this particular kind of realm of the earth? A lot of reasons have complicated the negotiations uh, from COVID most recently to geopolitical situations. But basically, it's a diverse array of interests in taking out or putting in or conserving and preserving what is in the ocean. For decades, centuries, we've been governed by regional fisheries management organizations that are responsible for managing high seas fisheries. 
but often the conservation of the ecosystems along with those comes second. We have an international maritime organization responsible for managing international shipping, but again, economic priorities have always taken the front lead. And so it is a conflict of interest and it's something that needs a common platform to try to start resolving these differences and setting a system of priorities that actually gives nature, biodiversity and the ocean life a voice. Yeah. So Douglas McCauley, what is beneath the high seas? Like what are we actually protecting here? Spectacular places, spectacular ecosystems. And part of what's special about the high seas or the ocean in general, but especially some of these amazing hotspots of biodiversity in the high seas is that they're a little secret. It's hard to actually appreciate all of the uniqueness, all of the importance, and that's economic importance, that's nutritional importance, all of the wealth on so many axes that we have down there in the ocean. It's hard to see it and appreciate because it's of course, underwater. You take off an airplane crossing the Pacific or the Atlantic, and all you see is this big blue flat landscape below you. But below that are just these incredibly rich places teeming with life. So let me give you a couple examples. So out on the high seas, the space that Christina just described, some of my favorite, and I think most important, and I have a long, long list of special places include spots like the Emperor Seamount chain. So if you, everyone knows Hawaii, but there's a set of islands north of Hawaii called Papahanaumokuakea, which stick up above the water. And uh, Native Hawaiian community recognizes those as the elder islands, but there are actually elders to those elders, which are underwater, which arc out into the high seas up towards Russia and beyond. And these undersea mountains are crowned by these living gold corals, some of them which are the oldest living animals on the planet, as old as some of the oldest pyramids, hovering above these golden crowns of corals or these radiant rainbow-colored schools of fish like living jewels, but, but, but better than jewels because they're absolutely unique. You can find fishes on top of these undersea mountains that you find nowhere else in the planet. They're what we call endemic species. I could go on and on sort of sampling different spots in the high seas like this that are beautiful, that are old, that are ecologically important, that are also um, economically important. So there's a huge amount of richness on so many different levels that we find once we once we challenge ourselves to look below that uh, blue layer. We're talking about the new High Seas Treaty recently finalized uh, by United Nations uh, member states going to protect the part of the ocean that covers nearly half of the Earth's surface and kind of falls outside the jurisdiction of individual countries. We're joined by uh, Douglas McCauley, Associate Professor of Ecology, Evolution and Marine Biology at UC Santa Barbara, who also heads the Benioff Ocean Science Laboratory at UCSB, as well as Christina Jurdy, who's a lawyer and senior high seas advisor with the International Union for Conservation of Nature's Global Marine and Polar Program. You know, we'd love to hear from you. I mean, what's your connection to the ocean? Was there a moment where that relationship to the ocean changed because you were out in it or you saw things, experienced things? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Or maybe you have questions about this particular treaty and what it may or may not do. We have experts on it. This is your time to call. The number would be 866-733-6786. 
Email comments and questions to forum at kqed.org, or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at KQED Forum. Uh, Christina, why don't we just go through the kind of basic things that this new treaty will do? Like, what are kind of the key planks of putting this thing together? Well, there are four planks to the treaty. The first is on high seas marine protected areas and other types of area-based management tools. The treaty will allow states to gather to designate specific places to adopt management plans and related measures. This is critically important as we've seen for Douglas Macaulay's whales that you actually need ship lanes perhaps rerouted to avoid collisions with whales. The second aspect is environmental impact assessments. It sets forth a process to actually try to investigate the potential impacts of new or expanded activities in the high seas before they are authorized to take place. This is critical to enable all stakeholders, including coastal states like California, to have a say in what goes on that is sometimes just basically offshore. The other two pillars are very important in the equitable side of things. The first is on sharing the benefits of marine genetic resources. These Hmm. are the DNA and um, chemicals that actually help to inform new drugs, new cosmetics, new nutraceuticals. And the other is the pillar that supports it all, capacity building and technology transfer, which is aimed at enabling all states, including developing states, to participate in the study, use, and enjoyment of this global ocean commons, the high seas. Wow. Uh, Magisterial. Thank you for that. Um, We are talking about the new High Seas Treaty recently agreed upon in the United Nations, joined by Christina Jurdy, Senior High Seas Advisor with the International Union for Conservation of Nature's Global Marine and Polar Program, as well as Douglas McCauley, Associate Professor at UCSB in Marine Biology. We're going to get to your calls and comments right after the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. He'd let us in, knows where we've been in his octopus's garden in the shade. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the new High Seas Treaty recently agreed upon by the United Nations member states. It's going to protect a huge chunk 
of the ocean and the life within it. Joined by Douglas McCauley, heads the Benioff Ocean Science Laboratory at the University of California, Santa Barbara, as well as Christina Jurdy, who is an advisor with the Global Marine and Polar Program of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. We'd love to hear from you. What are your concerns or worries related to the ocean's health? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Doug McCauley called this very treaty the most important talks that you know few people have heard of. And so it's one of the reasons why we wanted to make sure we were talking about it. The email's forum at kqed.org and Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's a KQED forum. Let's add another guest into the conversation. Christopher Chin is executive director of the Center for Oceanic Awareness, Research, and Education based in the Bay Area. Welcome, Christopher. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. So your organization, based in Oakland, has been a part of these kind of treaty negotiations. I was kind of fascinated because it, you do or, or did, you know, tech consulting by day and then run this org. So how did you come to end up, you know, talking to the United Nations about these issues? Well, it's it's kind of an interesting story and it's a longer story than the program has time for. But I uh, my, my dad was a diver before he met my mom and before they got married. And the ocean was always important to me. I was I was always considered a water baby. Uh, fast forward, I moved to California to go to school and then uh, started learned to dive. And I fell in love with that. I think I did 100 dives my first year. <laughs> wow. Uh, Fast forward a little bit more, and I uh, ended up having a camera in my hand and fell in love with that. So I started doing underwater film and photography, and I had the opportunity to go on an expedition with uh, with people that I really looked up to, uh, Howard and Michelle Hall, IMAX filmmakers. And we were in Fiji filming sharks, and it was the second day of filming. We had probably 12 different species all swimming around us. Mm. And then, so just to be clear, one, you're swimming in the water with twelve species of sharks. Just to... <laughs> indeed, indeed, yeah. and they're they're at arm's length. Um, so, and and we had bull sharks, tiger sharks, uh, you know, sharks that that most people imagine to be uh, dangerous. And it was the second day. This one particular animal swims by, and she locks eyes with me. And she held the gaze for a solid eight seconds. And I know that it's eight seconds because I have it on film. And that's when it occurred to me that this is not a dumb fish. This is a sentient being trying to understand what I'm doing there. And I, I got out of the water and I thought, I've been diving with them and filming them for years. And I had no idea how special they were. So what about everyone else on the boat? What, what about people who have never even seen the ocean? What do mm-hmm. they think about these animals? And I knew that sharks were imperiled, but I didn't realize quite to what extent yet. And I, that's when I realized that my calling was to teach people about the ocean mm-hmm. and to teach people about the, uh, the life within it. Wow, that's fascinating. So what did your organization end up focusing on? Was it, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of different ways that you can kind of work on conservation in the oceans. Where did you kind of want to put your effort? So we started with sharks because that was that was one of the the primary things that that drove the creation of the organization. But we quickly realized that uh, that pollution was important and uh, started working on the plastic bag bans here in California. We worked on that for so long. Uh, 
then we we began working on other issues. We we worked on the uh, the shark fin uh, ban here in California as well. Then uh, that rolled into other states and uh, and also federal efforts. And then I ended up uh, with an invitation to the UN Ocean Conference in 2016, 2017. And that's where it changed for me. And I realized how important the global effort for global issues was mm. going to be. You know, Christina, let's let's bounce this to you on the on the that topic of the global effort. I mean, I think it's hard for people to imagine like these waters weren't protected at all previously. Like I you know, I recently listened to Ian Urbina's Outlaw Ocean Project and it really did I, I came away from that, you know, amazing reporter, you know, formerly with the New York Times, has written about all these things, that there there really is not law or implementation of law over a wide chunk of the ocean. Yes, it's a huge problem because we have sort of decided we're going to divvy up the ocean according to sectors. So when a new activity emerges, there's no organization to actually manage it. That's mm -hmm. what, what, what happened with deep sea bottom fishing is we have brand new treaty, 1995, that dealt with highly migratory and straddling fish stocks because that's what swims between national waters and the high seas. But when people when nations started fishing for uh, orange ruffy on top of these seamounts and corals that Doug was describing so beautifully, it was open season. There was nothing in place until enough nations stood up and said, enough is enough. We're either going to establish new organizations to adopt uh, seamount closures, or we're going to call for a moratorium until these places are actually in, um, instituted. So we have a system that is playing catch up with the expansion of human activities and human interests. And that's why we need this framework that actually focuses on marine life, marine biodiversity and marine ecosystems going forward to make sure that doesn't happen again. Mm. You know, one of those perspective uh, activities in the ocean, one listener wants to know about, how will the new UN treaty impact the development of offshore wind farms off the Pacific coast? Is there any change in jurisdiction or new considerations for marine life protection? I'm assuming that the wind farms would be too close to the shore to be impacted by this treaty, Christina? Yes. I mean, presuming they're within 200 nautical miles, they wouldn't be directly impacted. There is a provision that actually requests states to consider offshore impacts beyond 200 nautical miles. So, for example, if the offshore wind farm were responsible for the death of lots of migratory seabirds or um, an obstacle for migration for some of the whales that we're talking about, then there would be a hope that the United States would publish an environmental impact assessment and make sure that other, no other states know what's going on. Mm. But there's no direct obligation to perform an environmental impact assessment and the process is much simpler. But there is international concern, of course. Yeah. Um, Christopher Chin, you know, on the issue of plastics, another listener wants to know, is there any way out of the plastic mess? It seems humans humans have ruined the oceans. The oceans are all connected, so conserving certain areas doesn't seem like it will matter. The new technology being developed to remove plastic from the ocean seems costly and impossible. What can be done? Let's start with you, Christopher, but I, I know this is an issue that, that all three of you have dealt with in different ways. Well, I'm glad that the listener chimed in that uh, that the 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 concept of removing plastic from the ocean is is costly and um, and and burdensome. And while that is important to remove 
the, the big plastic that's out there, the most important thing is to turn off the tap and to look upstream. There are so many types and, and items of plastic, single-use plastic, that we just do not need. And I so this this actually happens to me sometimes where I'm like filling my kettle and I walk away from it as the the water is dripping into the thing and then sometimes I get distracted and I forget and I literally come in and there's water pouring on the floor in my kitchen and the first thing that I do is turn off the tap I literally turn off the tap <laughs> The idea of cleaning up and focusing on that and focusing on recycling issues, which is important, but the idea of focusing on that and ignoring the tap is mm -hmm. the, the equivalent of grabbing a mop and telling everyone that a mop is important or a better mop is down the road. While we can have people working on that, the first thing, somebody needs to turn off the tap and really reduce the upstream production of uh, un. un unimportant, unnecessary, and uh, in many cases, toxic plastics. Yeah. Douglas McCauley, what's your uh, perspective? You share that, that, you know, it's it's really more about using and producing less plastic. I think that's, I agree with Christopher. I think that's where we, the bulk of our attention needs to focus. And since we're here gathered celebrating the hard work of folks who just passed this high seas treaty, I think it would be in order to mention that there's a big international effort another treaty negotiation effort that's underway that's trying to turn off that tap or at least create a roadmap to to do something about this um about the supply of this unnecessary especially this wasteful single-use plastic that comes and goes from our life and ends up in the ocean so the united nations has created a two-year roadmap which is remarkably fast remember we just did two decades uh trying to put together this high seas agreement but this is an issue that simply can't wait so a sprint to try to come up with an international treaty of a binding agreement to try to think of provisions that would help us slow down that flow of plastic um that's getting out into the oceans so very optimistic that uh, perhaps we can have a similar kind of success that we had for high seas on this plastic issue. Now, we can't hang all of our hopes on the international community and this UN treaty. The good news is there's a lot of things we can do close to home. California wonderfully passed a, a set of regulations that put us as a state on a journey to trying to slow down production or slow down use of these unnecessary single-use plastics. Um, there's a few milestones that are coming up in the next decade. Again, uh, that's good news, but um, it's good to have the policy. The hard work is here yet ahead to figure out exactly how to get to those milestones. And then the wonderful thing, last thing I'll say about plastics is that as we wait for some of these California state and maybe UN regulations come online, the, the wonderful thing about the plastic issue is that we get to decide every time we make a purchase, every time we click, you know, order something on uh, on um, uh, Uber Eats or whatever, you can choose whether you want plastic pollution, whether you want plastic utensils included in your order, what you buy at the store, what you use at home, what you pack in your kid's lunch. So even in the very moment, um, we can actually chip away at this problem. Yeah. You know, Christina Jurdy, one thing that I've been reflecting on as you talk about the way that these negotiations have gone, I mean, people are probably most familiar with the sort of climate negotiations and that treaty, not just the treaty, but kind of the, the mechanics of how the climate negotiations have gone and the framework that got set up uh, many years ago. 
Is it pretty similar to that? Is it based on that? Or are there things that we've learned from that process that we're now trying to, you know, improve with this new kind of framework? Well, there are a lot of similarities and, of course, lots of differences. But can I just get back to the plastic question oh, for a moment? Sure. Uh, that was there's a lot of plastic coming from land, but also from sea. And we do need to pay attention to that. A lot is being discharged illegally by ships, plastic bags, garbage. You need to get rid of it. It's out of sight, out of mind, as well as from the fishing fleets that are known for uh, sort of quickly cutting off the, the gear if it gets stuck on something or the the fish aggregating devices, these big nets that just sort of float across the sea. So we need new methods new methods to actually hold the users in the high seas accountable for the mm. plastics that they are also introducing into the marine environment. And governments, the, the United States, California can also do that from their ports. So we need multiple pronged action to truly turn off the tap. Uh, in terms of the processes for the BB&J, I think we have learned a lot from the, the climate conferences. Um, ours are not quite the same zoo that you get where you know, there's thousands of people there here. It's, maybe it's 400. Uh, there's um, the need for transparency and openness and participation of civil society. But when it gets down to the nitty gritty, they often have to go behind closed doors and hammer out these, uh, you know, word mag magic tricks to get everybody on board into the treaty. I think what we've learned most from these international processes is that consensus can kill progress. And that's in the climate change, we had the Mexican president gavel the closure of the meeting saying we have su sufficient consensus when it was one or two states that were still objecting. Uh, consensus is an essential to get all states on board, but if one or two or three states are persistent objectors and just simply don't want to see any progress on the water, you have to be able to move on. You have to say the sense of the international community demands that we take action now. And I think that's perhaps the biggest lesson we've learned from climate because that held us back for decades. And it was the Mexican president who did finally be bold enough to say we have sufficient consensus and gave new meaning to the term. Let's uh, bring in some callers. Let's go to uh, Julia in San Francisco. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Um, and thank you. Congratulations on the great work. I, um, I'm just wondering, we had bans on plastic in San Francisco and Marin, at least. I think it might have been further out into the Bay Area before the pandemic. And then they uh, stopped the bans so that we could use plastic during the pandemic. And they haven't reinstated that, those, um, those laws the bands. So I'm just wondering if there's anything in the works to get the plastic out of the, like, you know, the supermarkets and mm -hmm. all the places that we had banned it from before. Yeah. Great question. Christopher Chin. That's a really uh, great observation. And one of the things that we saw early on in the pandemic was that the plastic and petrochemical industry jumped at the opportunity to begin the narrative that plastic made things safer. So many of the uh, many of the, the the laws and regulations that had gone into effect in California and around the Bay Area were rolled back uh, under emergency orders to provide plastic again in order to make things safer. Of course, later down the road, we realized that that doesn't really make a difference, that doesn't help. But now we have this 
amazing flood, if amazing is the right word, this incredible flood of plastics that really uh, has overtaken us again. So we've taken a huge step back. And unfortunately, many, many people still have this idea that plastic makes things safer. And mm. it doesn't. Hmm. Oh, man, what a what a mess. Um, you know, uh, because we do know that there is all this plastic that is out in the oceans. You know, Christina Jurdy, like, is there a way to clean it up? Or, like, are we, like, or are the things that we do to clean it up actually create as much harm as, as good they did do? Well, that's sort of why you need an environmental impact assessment or more broadly, you know, an assessment of what are the potential range of impacts of this particular new technology. Some of the technologies uh, for cleaning up plastic in, in the ocean are just big fishing nets with very fine uh, meshed uh, screens. And so they're actually literally scooping up the life along with the plastic. So we do need to think more broadly. We need to think about the ocean as an ecosystem from the very surface waters to the, the very deepest seabed uh, when we are designing new technologies. It may be possible to pick up some of the larger pieces of plastics. And you know, we all want to go save that sea turtle that's smothered by a net that's attached to a coral reef. But we need to be able to do it carefully and we need to do it considerably considerately. And we also need, as um, Douglas and Christopher are saying, turn off the tap so these don't reach the water. And again, a lot of the stuff that you see in the open ocean is from the fishing gear, is from shipping, but also huge amounts that are stemming from land. So we need to be working on all fronts. One of our listeners, Holly, writes in to say, let's not forget that in addition to all the incredible species that inspire awe, the ocean performs essential services for free that sustain human life. The ocean supplies over half of the oxygen we breathe. The ocean absorbs a huge amount of the carbon dioxide that we've been spewing into the atmosphere. These natural services are threatened by the way we treat the ocean like a sewer. We have to take care of the ocean, the earth, and the atmosphere because they sustain human life. We would love to hear from you. What are your questions about this new treaty? What's your connection to the ocean? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. What are you concerned about or worried about when it comes to our, you know, one big ocean that we've split up into these different names? The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. We'll be back with more right after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Under the sea, under the sea, darling, it's better down where it's wetter. Take it from me, 
Up on the shore they work all day Out in the sun they slave away While we devoting full time to floating under the sea Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. That is a real banger. That's Under the Sea from the Little Mermaid soundtrack. We're talking about the new High Seas Treaty recently agreed upon by the United Nations member states. It's going to protect a huge chunk of the ocean and all the life within it. We're joined by Christina Jurdy, lawyer and uh, senior high seas advisor with the International Union for Conservation of Nature, also an adjunct professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey and a UCLA grad. Go Bruins, play at noon today. Uh, also joined by Christopher Chin, executive director of the Center for Oceanic Awareness Research and Education based in the Bay Area. And Douglas McCauley, associate professor of Ecology, Evolution, and Marine Biology at UC Santa Barbara, also heads the Benioff Ocean Science Laboratory at UCSB. Um, Before we get to a bunch more calls and comments, um, Douglas, I wanted to ask you about a specific area of concern, which is just about deep sea mining. Uh, people may not be aware that that's something that's kind of on the on the table. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of what is the state of that industry, that use of the ocean, and um, how serious of a threat do you think it poses to marine life? Well, I'll start with the last part, a serious threat. Um, and this is the thing that has me so enthusiastic and excited about this new treaty is that it's looking after creating a framework for us to think about more holistic protection for biodiversity in the high seas today. But it also gives us tools and a platform to protect the high seas and manage them responsibly for the next 100 years, the next 500 years, which means that our use of the oceans are changing, but we have this flexible tool to look after and be smart about keeping biodiversity with us out there. Now, this issue of deep sea mining is one of those frontier industries that is just now emerging. For a long time, um, yeah, seabed mining- uneconomical, right? I mean, yeah. it's a long way down, hard oper- environment to operate in. Exactly. It's all those things. I mean, you're mining, the proposition here um, is to mine in about 4,000 meters of water. That's super, super, super deep ocean. That's really difficult technically to get down there. The companies that are investing in this and and investing significantly, hundreds of millions of dollars investment that are trying to build waterproof robots that would go down there and excavate these um, same biodiverse, same spectacular ecosystems we've been talking about. So it's sort of the equivalent of, in the case of seamounts, mountaintop mining under the oceans, or in some of these really important biodiverse areas between Hawaii and California and Mexico. There's just fabulous species, a whole lot of carbon stored down there. And the effort or the area that is being proposed for mining is gigantic. So the the area in the Pacific that folks are talking about mining is the same width or just about the same width as the continental U.S. So it's something... We need to think about the threats from yesterday, plastics and overfishing, but we need to think about what's happening in our future ocean as well. And this is a big one for us to concern and take uh, to be concerned about and take head on. What What are the minerals we're talking about here, or is it, like what are people actually trying to get? There's a there's a portfolio of minerals. One of the mineral resources that people are most interested in are these rocks that are sort of potato sized called polymetallic nodules, and that they are what the name suggests. They are <laughs> all of different kind of metals. So there's cobalt. There's some rare earth elements. There's nickel. Uh, some of these things are uh, minerals and metals that people are interested in in building out uh, infrastructure for electrification for things like 
electric vehicles. Now that's super, super important. The grand global challenge for planet, for oceans, as we mentioned a moment ago, is climate change. But the good news is we have plenty of smarter ways to get that supply of minerals to build our EVs and build all the rest of the hardware for electrification that does not involve destroying these fabulous parts of our ocean. All right. Um, let's go back to the phones for a bit. Uh, Cyril from Bay, welcome. Good morning. How are you doing? Hey, doing well. Thanks for calling. Well, um, I wanted to give you my feedback. I'm the kayaker who crossed from Monterey to Hawaii on a 90-day solo journey. Oh and God. I wanted to give you the feedback from actually being on the water day-to-day mm-hmm. at the two-mile-per-hour slow pace. <laughs> and how? first, I want to give uh, congratulations to whoever is doing the work out there because I also crossed in 2016 on a rowing boat, 39 days, the same strait of ocean from Monterey to Hawaii. And in the six years that I've passed, I've seen such a big improvement in the quantity of, of, of plastic that are floating. Now, uh, obviously, it's not the whole picture because there's a thing that sink. But uh, my feedback is, is one of optimistic. And the second one is, is one of responsibility that we as human beings have. Um, as I was in the middle of the ocean, I could see how well adapted the wildlife was. And how amazing, after having not seen land for like two months, you see these birds that are floating around and so adapted to their environment. Mm. And when you think about it, everything that humans do is actually detrimental. You could imagine a world with no human being, the, the nature would be in balance with itself. So I think we have a responsibility to actually correct everything that we're doing wrong for this planet. And that starts by, you know, controlling when there's runoff right now, there, there's so much rain. I paddle in the bay every day and I see so much trash that is coming mm. from the streets. Um, but another thing we could do also, and, and tell me if I'm too long, but um, is I'm actually learning um, all the, sea, um, you know, um, the laws that allow ships to throw, what you're allowed to throw in the mm. ocean. And I cannot understand. You're not allowed to throw anything if you're within two miles. But Fireland is only 27 miles away. 25 miles off the coast, except for plastic, you're allowed to throw everything. That means metals, glass, anything. It's so close. Why on the lows, so easy as, hey, if you're taking anything on the water except organic, you're not allowed to throw it in the water. That's pretty simple. Yeah, yeah. Cyril, um, pretty amazing feat um, to have gone across. I mean... Do you, what do you think, between here and Hawaii, you're floating out there, people should really um, Google um, this so you can see how tiny this vessel really is. I mean, did yeah. your, do you think your perspective wildly changed just by seeing the, the scale of this environment out there? Yeah, I think um, in everything we do, there's a theory. Like, for example, I can tell you, hey, we're going to die. You know you're going to die. Everybody's going to die. But when you're close to a, a losing your life experience, you understand what it means. And to me, I always said, I love the ocean. I don't want plastic. And I understand in the theory, that's what we should do. That's our responsibility. But once I was in the middle of the ocean and for those 90 days alone, I could feel the connection with the water. I could feel the mm-hmm. connection with the waves and the fish that were my fish. So it's, it's really just took a whole different level in my mind our responsibility as a human species to 
protect the environment because, like I said earlier, that that's our fault, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but also because how beautiful it is. I mean, you see those albatross and the frigates catching the flying fish and the tuna and the mahi mahi. Like it, this is National Geographic <laughs> at a two mile an hour on a twenty three foot <laughs> boat that I lived. And I want to share that with people. So, yeah, it, yeah, so it's not a theory, but it's a reality. Yeah. Hey, Cyril, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. I mean, um, to the sort of policy point uh, amongst this incredible experience Cyril was sharing with us, Christina, are there, uh, is there a possibility that the sort of dumping rules and pollution rules and trash rules of the ocean could change as a result of this uh, treaty? Or is that not on the table? Well, this treaty helps to set the the table for consultation cooperation with other key organizations. So my suggestion would be we need to be speaking with the the U.S. government and its agencies need to be speaking with the International Maritime Organization and all the states that are members of it to say, hey, we have to do our best to clean up the ocean. We do have to change the rules for discharges from ships. There's a lot of illegal dumping, but I think as our colleague just said, there's a lot of legal legal discharges. Um, And similarly, with respect to the U.S. power or ability to change what's going on vis-a-vis deep seabed mining, that the treaty first calls on states parties to do all they can to actually implement provisions of this new treaty in other bodies. But it may be too late to actually change the course of the discussions that are happening next week at the International Seabed Authority, where they are trying to, some are trying to quickly adopt rules that would enable deep seabed mining in the international seabed area. Um, But many other states are standing up to say, no, now is not the time. We don't know enough about the deep seafloor. We don't know enough about the impacts on commercial fisheries, on biodiversity, to enable this new large-scale commercial industry to take off. So we do have to act now. We can't wait for the treaty to come into force, but we also need to utilize all those tools we can to start engaging with the members of these other international organizations to make sure that biodiversity and ocean life are truly mainstreamed and not pushed to the side for later. Um, Christina, one of our listeners, Mark, writes in to say, does each signatory country now have to ratify the treaty in order for it to take effect amongst each nation? For example, does the U.S. Senate have to ratify this before the U.S. would be considered a participating party? And does this treaty contain binding provisions? And if so, are there enforcement mechanisms? So, Mark, getting to the the mechanics of how this is actually going to work. Okay, getting to the legal nitty gritties. Um, That was you can sign a treaty and then you're obliged to at least not undermine it. The hope is that you will take the next logical steps and develop the legislative framework that you need to officially implement and ratify the program. So not all states that are signatories to a treaty ultimately end up ratifying. The U.S. is a signatory to the Convention on Biological Diversity, but not a party. There's huge hope that the U.S. will ultimately ratify this agreement. First big step would be to sign it. It will take 60 states to actually ratify the agreement, have gone through this whole legislative process to sign on, exceed or um, approve their participation. So 60 states. And once you have 60 states, then the treaty will come into effect for those states within um, a year of the the final party. Um, There are 
international law is not necessarily about the hammer for enforcement mechanisms, but there are mechanisms built into the treaty, a compliant implementation and compliance committee where states parties will be required to give reports on what they're doing to implement the treaty itself. Uh, on the marine protected areas, that's states will be buying, bound by the measures that are adopted to protect them, but there is sort of a narrow wriggle room that the United States and others asked for to allow them to have time to think about this in case they don't have the legislative authority to implement it right away. So yes, it's complicated. Happy to yeah. speak about this offline. No, no, no. I, I, I love that Mark asked that question. I love that you're able to, um, you know, frame the many steps that are necessary and, you know, this is a this is a milestone. Um, it's not the the end of the road. Okay, um, and, and many of us are starting to already think through. Okay, you know, how do we help states to uh, get the legislation in place to get the capacity needed in their institutions and in their national um, processes and their scientific community to actually enable effective and equitable implementation? So it's an exciting time. Yeah. Um, let's bring in Art from Santa Rosa. Welcome, Art. Yes, I thank you very much. It's a great program. My heart is in the ocean. I love the ocean. I'm still a diver. I'm a recreational diver. I used to be a commercial diver offshore, Gulf of Mexico. I've been to Africa, Okinawa. In Africa, I saw the destruction the Brits and the Americans were making out of the coastline. Mm. And I quit my job, and I lost a lot of money. And that's not the point. The point is, number one, stop eating fish. <laughs> offshore, they're dumping uh, nets, plastic nets. The other thing is, when you go to the market, say, I don't want any plastic because it destroys the ocean. And the people look at you like you're dumb. I've called up all the big companies, Safeway, uh, Grocery Outlet, all these people that have uh, stacks and stacks of plastic. And I've, I've called uh, the CEO and I've asked to speak to them. Nobody wants to talk about it. So all I have to say is, Stop using plastic. Our state uh, did us under when they allowed larger bags after the plastic bag ban. I think mm -hmm. it's a disgrace. Yeah. Hey, Art, thank you. Appreciate your passion around this this topic, and um, incredible to be go from being a commercial fisherman to being you know an, a, a true activist and advocate for for the oceans um, in this way. You know, Doug McCauley, um, one of the things that uh, I've been thinking about about this treaty is kind of the intersection that it has with our other um, environmental protections, most specifically around climate. You know, we know that ocean acidification as a result of the increasing concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is a major problem for our ocean. So how do you how do you see these kind of multiple types of environmental protection kind of working together? Well, they have to work together because these are systemic problems. Um, and the, again, the good news is the treaty provides more of a systemic platform for solutions. So you're right to point out that, uh, again, one of the more important issues and one that is very cross-cutting that we need to face for our, our well-being, for you know the health of, of communities close to, close to the coast, and for the health of all of these ecosystems that are far from the coast out in the high seas is tackling climate change head on. And it's doing exactly what you said. So it's making the oceans hotter, creating these big heat waves. It's becoming more acidic. It, it's driving oxygen out of the ocean. It's sort of like, I mean, just imagine for people who keep aquaria or have friends that keep aquaria, if you were to, to do that to your aquaria and pull out the bubbler to remove the oxygen, turn up the temperature, drop in, drip, drip, drip more 
acid, what would be the fate of your aquarium? It would be, you know, it would not be alive anymore. And that's what we're concerned about if we move forward slowly but surely with climate change in the ocean. So I think we need to be focusing on some of the um, various different international efforts that are moving in parallel. We have this major milestone, but yet, as you say, a journey ahead for the high seas in the form of this treaty. We have a long-standing effort to try to make climate action and climate progress happen in all of our climate negotiations. And that's an even more important journey and a longer journey, but just critically important. We have the plastics journey. In any case, I suppose my point is we have to throw a lot of effort in all of these different tracks because they do intersect and we need to have success in each of these tracks if we intend to have healthy oceans for ourselves and for the ocean's own sake. You know, real quick, we're not going to get a chance to get to listener Ben and Alameda, but Christopher, I wanted to ask you his question. What other steps can Californians take to make things better for the oceans? Well, I, I think that one of the things that Art brought up was that we all have an individual responsibility to make good choices. Um, and and that's, that's important. But one of the other things that is, is even, probably even more important is that there are overarching rules and regulations that prohibit that that don't require us to make these choices for example yes we can all choose the the better thing the the without the plastic bag and and whatnot but the fact is that these companies are offering plastics because they're cheaper because it's a more cost effective alternative because those things do not take into consideration the full life cycle of plastic. So if companies are responsible for the cost of cleaning up their their poison, their pollution, then that styrofoam cup that is so super cheap would be it would be a dollar instead of uh, a half a cent. Right. And that kind of thing that we need to uh, to push for. So when uh, when your local organizations reach out and ask you to push your legislators to support smart legislation, like what we had here in Bill uh, uh, 54, that's the kind of thing that we need to, uh, to perk up and really hold uh, co- companies accountable for how they're harming us. We've been talking about the new High Seas Treaty recently agreed upon by the United Nations member states. We've been joined by Christopher Chin, Executive Director of the Center for Oceanic Awareness Research and Education based here in the Bay Area. Christina Jurdy, Senior High Seas Advisor for the International Union for Conservation of Nature. And Douglas McCauley, Associate Professor of Ecology, Evolution, and Marine Biology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and Head of the Benioff Ocean Science Lab at UCSB. Thank you so much for all your calls and comments. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, The smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity... 
We have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.